0: I ask you then to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as uh, we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've come to chapter 1 and we'll be looking this morning at verses 15 to 23 and we'll be uh, continuing that series through the Easter week itself. Each of these passages have uh, relevance to Easter but of course we'll study them on their own merits as well from uh, the context and the application from God's word. So Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'll read to us from verse 15 until verse 23. Let's hear God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age But also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's pray as we come now to God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we thank you for your word. We pray, uh, as Paul is praying here, that indeed the eyes of our hearts would be open to see uh, what it is that you uh, want to teach us here. Uh, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this week. We pray it would be a significant one in all of our lives. We thank you for the children and their presence with us in the service so far. And again, we ask, Lord, that as the Apostle Paul prayed, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be open to see Uh, what it is that you're teaching us here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2015, uh, the uh, BBC conducted an unusual experiment. They got together a group of wannabe Adele singers, Adele being, of course, the famous um, singer, And uh, had a competition to see who could sound most like Adele, which of course is not an easy thing to do given that she has the most extraordinary voice. Um, some say that I should have gone into that competition and I might have won. <laughs> uh, but those who've heard me sing would know that I was joking. So, But what made this competition rather unusual was that the BBC also... Invited Adele herself to participate. Undercover. In disguise. Uh, she did her hair differently. She wore clothes that were not rock star clothes or whatever she normally wears. It was different. And in fact, they went so far as to give her a fake nose, a prosthetic nose. And you, can, you can see it on YouTube. So the, the different... Uh, singers uh, do their bit and then they sit down the front and then the next singer comes on who unknown to them, undercover, is Adele her, herself. And she comes onto the platform and she sort of plays it up and looks very nervous, you know, and sort of, and she tries to sing. So well, let's, let's start again. And then she enters into one of her famous songs and starts to sing it like Adele. And all the other people, on the, 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 the other contestants on the front you see their faces, they' sort of and then they look at each other and go, "It's her." Many of the things about the church, the true reality of the church is, for many people, undercover, in disguise. And the Apostle Paul here is praying. He is, if you've been following us along in our series, the whole point of the letter of the Ephesians is to encourage uh, this this network of churches to which he's writing. He planted the church through a ministry in the hall of Tyrannus. He did these daily lectures, and the word of God went out through to the whole province of Asia. So he knew some of the Christians, but not others, because there was a whole network of churches planted throughout that area. And he's writing to Ephesus and this network of churches. Uh, to encourage them that God has heavenly power in the heavenly places. The ongoing theme throughout the letter is a letter of encouragement. As we saw last week, he encouraged them, first of all, that God has a purpose to bless us, a sovereign purpose to bless us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, this sovereign purpose. And now, because of that, he says, for this reason, namely, because God has His sovereign purpose to bless us. And He says, Because I've heard of your faith and love, because there were some that He hadn't met in person, though some He had, He'd heard that they really were part of this blessing that God had given. They, they had faith, they believed, and they had love for all the saints, that is, for all the other Christians. There was evidence that they were real Christians. What's the evidence that someone's a real Christian? They love the church. They had faith and the love for all the saints. They're real Christians. They're part of God's sovereign purpose to bless his people. On account of this, he's praying. What he's praying is that the eyes of their hearts would be opened. The heart means the, the central part of the personality in biblical language, not just the emotions, not just the sentiment, but the thinking and the feeling and the willing. The, the central heart of who a person is would be open to see. He, he's praying that the, the Father of all glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him. Don't get the theologians amongst, don't get tripped up by that word revelation. Paul wasn't praying that they'd have a new revelation. What he's praying is that they would be illuminated. They would see, as he says, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And then he lists three things he wants them to know, each introduced by the word what, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, then what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, all of which culminates uh, verse 22, in the church, he gave him as head over all things to the church. The Apostle Paul is praying that they would see what otherwise is undercover. What is the hope? What are the riches? And what is the power of the church? So let's look at those three things together. First of all, what is the hope? Uh, Verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Uh, And as I say, you can see from the end of it, this culminates in, Uh, in the church and in fact this theme of the hope to which he's called you as Christians in the church he picks up again later in the letter you look at uh, chapter 4 this this theme of the church is one of the the important sub themes of the letter chapter 4 he says this verse 1 I therefore prisoner Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called what is that calling well, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bury one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit. This is the body of Christ, the church. And he talks then about the, uh, the gifts that was given to the church and the, and, and the work of the church from which the whole body, uh, verse 16 in chapter 4, uh, joined together and works and who is the head under Christ. So when he, he's praying now, and of course he then teaches throughout the letter about this, this hope What is the hope to which he has called you as the church? To put it in kind of contemporary terms, what he wants them to see is that the future belongs to the church. Now we, We don't think like that these days. Of course, it would have been hard for them too with all the power of Rome and as we saw you know, the, the goddess Artemis with, the, with her, the, one of the seven wonders of the world and all this around them. The, the idea that this local church, these, this network of churches was the future would have seemed extraordinary. And yet, of course, so it proved. In our day, also, we don't tend to think like that. We, we, there's all this doom and gloom about the church, don't you believe it? The future belongs to the church. In the uh, high Middle Ages, in the 13th century, a Christian leader called Humbert of the Romans wrote saying, these days hardly anyone goes to church... No one listens to sermons, and they're completely ignorant of the basics of Christian doctrine. And then came the Reformation. In 1606, a Christian leader called Nicholas Bound said the people of his day were, were totally ignorant of, of biblical themes. In fact, he said, if you tell them a story from the Bible, they look at you as if it's the most surprising myth and legend. They'd never even heard of it. He said, they are far more familiar with Robin Hood than the stories of the Bible. And then came the Puritan resurgence. In 1730 the uh, great atheistic philosophical leader Montesquieu said that no one is any more in any way interested in religion in fact if you mention religion people just laugh 1730 and then came the great awakening Don't you believe the stories of doom and gloom Actually the true church is thriving there have been studies done on this uh, that, that, that show this. Uh, a study that came out of Indiana University that showed that actually the kind of religion that's on decline is what they, what they called moderate religion. But intense religion, which they defined as evangelicalism or Bible teaching or passion, here we are in Passion Week, that's at least holding its own, if not, I would say, on the, on the up. Even in the West, certainly, or around the world, for sure, <laughs> In fact, another study that came out of our own state, a university in our own state, Illinois, uh, looked at the 2020 U.S. Census data and found that actually non-denominational Bible teaching churches since from 2010 to 2020 had grown in attendance in America by 6.5 million. Not everything that calls itself a church grows. Certainly... But a real church, a Bible teaching church, a gospel church. I want you to see, I want you to grasp, I want the eyes of your heart to be illuminated that you would see what is the hope to which you've been called. The future belongs to the church. The future doesn't belong to the tech companies, the future doesn't belong to whoever masters whatever it is, chat GPT or the latest AI technology. The future is, is the church. I want you to see that, says the Apostle Paul. And then second, he says, I want you to see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now we've got to look carefully what he writes there because we would think that he's, if you don't look closely at the text, your mind will think that he's saying, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? But he doesn't say that. He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, Uh, Certainly, uh, the apostle has already taught uh, the Ephesians and that network of churches that that, that Christians, too, have an inheritance. You you may remember that from earlier in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Yes, we Christians have an inheritance, too. And he says the same thing in verse 14 of chapter 1. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we... Uh, Acquire possession of it to the praise for his glory so that we who are Christians also have an inheritance. But here as he's praying, he's saying something different. He wants our eyes to be open not only to what is the hope that the future belongs to the church, but what are the riches of his, namely God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Paul is playing on a a fairly common theme in the Old Testament here. You can read about it in Deuteronomy uh, 28, verse 9, or uh, Psalm 28, verse 9, but it's, it's all over the Old Testament that God's inheritance is his people, that his prized possession is his people. an extraordinary thought. And I want, Paul saying, I want, I'm praying that the Lord will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to open the eyes of your heart so that you might see what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in the church. I, I was interested to discover that in 2018, the, the uh, one... Newspaper, one, one online article, claimed that Jeff Bezos, however you pronounce his last name, but the guy who runs Amazon, in 2018, this article said that Jeff Bezos was the, the richest person who's ever existed. Um, I, I think there's been something of a stock market change since then. But anyway, in 2018, maybe he still is the richest person. Uh, I don't know. But in 2018... This article claimed he was the richest person who ever existed. He had $120 billion or something like that. But then another economist uh, got working on that. So, well, actually, if you go back to the Gilded Age and you take into account inflation and the change in economic realities and all that, then John D. Rockefeller actually in, in contemporary dollars... Uh, would have um, had three times what Jeff Bezos had, $360 billion, uh, John D. Rockefeller, in contemporary terms in 2018. And that got me thinking. What about Genghis Khan? How much did he own? The height of the Mongol Empire or um, Alexander the Great? Or Julius Caesar. And here Paul is saying that the richest person in the whole universe, by definition, the one who literally owns it all, his prized possession is the church. We are the most valuable commodity, according to God, in the whole universe. Uh, The um, movie, It's a Wonderful Life, illustrates this, I think, uh, well towards the end of the movie when the, the angel says to the protagonist when he's finally been rescued from bankruptcy and says, he who is, has friends, he who is no failure who has friends. Christian, be encouraged. You look at your bank balance, you think it's not as big as it was last year. Or I, I'm, in, I'm in difficulty. If you are a part of a church... You are a part of the most valuable commodity in the universe according to the richest person in the universe by definition. God who owns it all. I want you to see that, says the Apostle Paul. I want you to see that the future belongs to the church, not to tech companies. I want you to see that the richest company you could ever be a part of is the local church. Therefore, of course, be encouraged if you're a part of it. If you're not a part of it, get to be a part of it. What is the hope? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints in the church uh, but then uh, finally and and um, emphatically and most significantly for the apostle Paul, he emphasizes by spending longest talking about it and, and he 's he's then introducing. A, a major theme throughout the letter, not only uh, what is uh, the hope that is the future belongs to the church, not only what are the riches uh, 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 of the church, that the church is the, the prized possession of the man, the, the God, the, the, the one, the person who literally owns it all, what are the riches of his god 's glorious inheritance saints, most emphatically, thirdly, what is the power? Look at verse nineteen. And, so this is the third what, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The church. Almost certainly here, uh, Paul is uh, reflecting some language that would have been used in, in Ephesus about the power of Rome. In fact, there's one a recent archaeological excavation from a house in Ephesus has discovered there was a graffiti, a graffito of, uh, about Rome that uses some of this sort of language that, that Rome is the great power that will last forever. Well, the Apostle Paul has a difference of opinion. I want you to see that the immeasurable greatness of his power is toward us who believe. Where where is that power? According to the working of his great might. Now that, you you need to understand, is picked up a a bit later in the letter. If you come with me to chapter 6, verse 10... You see how the Paul uses a similar sort of phrase as he culminates the letter. Verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. A very similar sort of phrase. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of this great... Uh, uh, of this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places. Well, back to chapter 1, there is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. What is the power of the church? Where, Where is the working of his great might? Well, verse 20 tells us that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What a great Easter Sunday morning text. I should preach this one next week that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice that ongoing theme throughout the letter. He wants us to see the true spiritual reality, the otherwise hidden spiritual reality. So where is God's power shown? It is shown at Calvary and in the empty tomb. I think often Christians get this wrong. You see in certain apologetic contexts where a Christian is trying to explain that God really is all-powerful and they'll go to uh, the cosmological scale of the universe or they'll go to the microbiological minute elements of the, of, of the cell and the various uh, microscopic particles and, and, and they'll describe, look, isn't our God amazing? But, well, True! Absolutely, but the greatest place where God's power is most shown is on that cross and in that tomb. And he says he's now seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Um, Someone sent me a Facebook message, asked me to explain the the seated us, when we come to chapter 2, verse uh, 6, uh, that we're seated with him in the heavenly places Christ Jesus. Of course, we'll, uh, we'll do that. And actually, that's the text we're looking at on Good Friday, and we'll do that when we get there. But the seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, the, the Apostle Paul is using language from the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, about the victory of God. So what he's saying here is that, that Jesus... God, through Jesus' death and resurrection, has won the victory. His power has been shown. And now, like a military ruler who has conquered, he, he sits down. He's won. He's seated. Uh, where? Far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion. Rome, uh, that text, that uh, graffiti in Rome and that house that was excavated that would have probably being other things like that around that they would have seen. Uh, Rome, the great power that will last forever. No, says the apostle Paul, there is a greater power, far above all power and dominion, all authority, all rule, above every name that is named, far above Caesar, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And where is that power exercised? He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the Church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That last phrase is a very difficult phrase to translate from the Greek, and different versions will put it in slightly different ways. To my mind, the best explanation I've come across was uh, from one scholar who who suggests that Paul is rhetorically coming to the end of his of his uh, prayer and he's utilizing a much uh, vaulted and and, um, uh, 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 recognized rhetorical um, scheme at the time and still, of course, today, uh, namely alliteration, and particularly the the sound P or P. And in in the Greek, it's a play on that, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus has all the fullness of God, And he has all the full power, and he's the head of the church, and that power is exercised through the church, through his body. Uh, No, Rome, you are not the great power. There is a greater power. Uh, No, uh, the greatest power in the universe is not in Washington, D.C., there's a greater power. Certainly isn't in Springfield. It's not in local government either. Uh, it's not in the tech companies and it's not the alphabetic soup of Google, Amazon and what it, Facebook or whatever else it is. Uh, The greatest power in the universe is, of course, God's power. That was shown at the cross, his death death and resurrection, and that power is now being exercised through Jesus, who's the head of his body, namely the church. And I want you to see that, says the Apostle Paul. Uh, Christians down through the years have often recognized this. My... I think one of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the uh, Christians in France uh, known as the Huguenots, and the Huguenots, who were at one stage millions of them and had huge churches, uh, thousands and thousands strong, some of their local churches, and a a very dynamic gospel movement of the Huguenots in France, uh, became a persecuted people, and many of them fled to places like Canada and America and England and other countries. And they had a, one of their mottos uh, that uh, I've seen is, is a picture of an anvil, uh, which is in, uh, with a hammer. And an anvil is like the, the large structure that you hammer out metal and other things onto. And the anvil uh, in this image, they associated with God's word and God's people. And on the anvil with a picture of a hammer kind of pounding on the anvil, they had the phrase... Uh, which, uh, roughly speaking, went like this. The more they pound, the more they shout, the more they wear their hammers out. Uh, God's power is in the church. And therefore, of course, Christians, be encouraged and also uh, commit your lives to the, the body of Christ. What are the riches? What is the power? What is the hope? What is the future? The most prized possession of the richest person in the universe, namely God, is us, the church. The future belongs to the church, And the power in the heavenly places, I want you to see, says the Apostle Paul, that's where the real the real power is. I think in 2015 there must have been a little um, fashion for these kind of undercover moments among musicians. Another one. Took place on the 42nd Street subway in in New York City, with this time not Adele but U2, and they they played in disguise. And then, after a few minutes or so, uh, Bono took off his fake moustache or whatever it was and began to play as Bono. And the Edge was there, and the whole all the four um, the the four members of the U2 band from Ireland were there playing. And again, you can see on YouTube people catching it with their their phones and and uh, undercover revealed. So much of the church seems to be undercover. We don't see it. I want you to see it, says the apostle Paul. I wonder whether we do. There's a a British Greek evangelist called J. John, and uh, in. Uh, he shared at one point that he often wrestles with what to say when someone asks him what he does. He's a, a reverend, a pastor. I, I, I find the same. If you go, if you meet someone for the first time and they ask you what you do, and you say I'm a pastor, they immediately have a choice: either to talk about God or to talk to someone else. And I, I've experienced that many times in plains. It's like you can say, "Okay, right." face down, watch the movie. He's going to talk to me about Jesus and the Bible pretty quick, you know. Um, So he came up with a novel approach. He's on a plane, and there's a woman sitting next to him, and he says to her, so where are you going? She says, I'm flying to Singapore. And she says, so where are you going? He says, well, actually, I'm going on from there. I'm going to Australia. And uh, she says, oh, what's taking you there? And he says, this reverend, this pastor, he says, well, I'm I work for a global enterprise. She says, oh, wow, that sounds pretty impressive. Or, it really is, he says. We are everywhere. Australia, of course, but also in the Middle East and Africa and Europe and the Far East. We're, we're everywhere. And we have hospitals and hospices and educational programs, and, and, and we're really into uh, justice and reconciliation. We we take care of the poor. Basically, we look after people from birth to grave. And we specify, he said, in behavioural modification. She <laughs> said, "Well, that sounds so impressive. Who do you work for?" He said, "The church." <laughs> Never heard of it. I wonder whether we see the true power, riches, and future belongs to the church. Well, the prayer here is that we would. So let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to see what is the hope, what are the riches, and what is the power of your body, of which you are the head, the church. And we ask these things in the glorious and precious name of Jesus. Amen.